Welcome to another episode of Harvest Series, a podcast following a four-day experience in Kaplankaya on the southwestern Aegean coast of Turkey, filled with fascinating talks and workshops to harvest knowledge and nurture the planet, an event produced by Athena Advisors and Capital Partners. The Hero's Journey is the framework of storytelling that was created by Joseph Campbell. And he studied the mythology of many cultures and came putting it together in a framework to create this idea of the hero's journey. Most of our storytelling framework have followed that. Yeah. You know, if we think of movies, it's one hero, one journey, one guru who's going to help give them some advice and everything's going to be okay and they're going to change the world and save the world. You know, think Luke Skywalker. But if we just stop for a moment and think about this pandemic... There was no one hero. We all had to play a role. We would not have survived if it wasn't for the people, the nameless people. And they are part of the story. And so my approach is that by recognizing that we need to get away from these hierarchies. Yes, you know, we all need to take an individual journey, but we shouldn't stop there. That we then come together to work together to save each other. I am Rose, a French journalist based in Barcelona. And this episode is an interview made in Caplancaya with Ada Paris. She is a system thinker, storyteller, and artist, the chair of Mental Health First Aid England, and the chair of Culture Values Advisory Group. In this episode, we're going to discuss the theme of Ada's speech at Harvest, which ancestors we want to be for the next generation, and also look at the art of asking questions, especially if you want to change the system. We are the ancestors of the next generations. What do you want to leave to this planet? What a great question to have raised. It was also raised by the great Alexandra Astley here in Kaplankaya a few years ago. But how did you come to that essential question? And uh, could you tell me more about you, what you mean by that? So I think that the question is something that I've been trying to articulate for most of my life. If you speak to my mother, she will tell you that as a child, I was a social justice warrior. Injustice would make me cry. That was the thing, whether it was humans or plants or animals, those are the things that really got to me. And I think throughout my life, I have been looking at, I've had empathy and compassion for this concept of others, you know, not just other humans. And my work, my life has really been around asking questions. So as a child, I asked a lot of questions and I was that child at school, but why? But why? But why? And I think that that's my natural curiosity. My mother brought us up to understand that life is about experiences rather than things. And so the idea of how do we define technology how do we define all of these things came from there um a few years ago i was working in the advertising industry and understanding how we communicate i worked in education how we learn and so it feels like it's just been a natural progression of moving into these different areas of education technology advertising and seeing a connection between all of them and asking But where does that come from? What is the legacy that we're going to leave behind? How did these things, who was the first? I was also a child, who was the first to do this? You know, who was the first to create this idea? What were they thinking at that time? And then think, leaping forward to think, what am I going to leave? 
how are people going to remember me when I travel around the world, when I do these different things? I love your aspect of questions, asking questions, because we have a tendency as adults uh, to ask uh, less and less questions and yes. children. Yes. <laughs> and, but you kept this. And what are the questions uh, we can ask ourselves to answer uh, these beautiful questions of uh, what kind of ancestor do I want to be? So I frame that in, I've got a framework that I use that has five phases. So leave, breathe, grow, flow and ground. Leave. What are we going to leave? But what do we need to leave behind? We spend so much time asking, trying to redefine the problem when actually maybe the problem is that we don't have the right values or our values. So what are the new values that we need to create to try and shift us away from where we are, from maintaining the status quo to creating a new way of being? So what are the values that we need to have? Breathe. What are the tensions in the system that are holding us together? You know, when I did my talk, I, you know, in the panel session, we spoke about what are the things that are holding us? What are the things I would like people to leave to, to understand? And it's to be able to exhale because we're so tightly wound up, especially in this current climate. We're holding our breath all the time. So what is our theory of change? What's our hypothesis? Grow. What are the tools, technologies, rituals that we need to help to create this change? And sometimes, I think for a lot of time, that's about stepping outside of our echo chambers, stepping outside and recognizing that it might feel uncomfortable. But that's okay because we've been maintaining the status quo. We've become very used to being in a particular way and change may be difficult. It may be uncomfortable, but we have to step outside and speak to people who don't look like us, who don't have our lived experiences, because that's the only way that we will grow. And so flow which is that's where the what type of ancestor question came in as well, because it's about what are the legacies? How are we going to make this sustainable? Not just for our children or our children's children, because that still has a sense of centering the problem, centering it around us. We should be doing this because it's the right thing to do. And so what are the, what is the sustainability of that? Many First Nations peoples will talk about things in seven lifetimes. And that's how we should think. How is it going to maintain? How, what's going to look like? What is going to be here in those generations? And the last bit is ground. How do we turn this into a movement that is there for all? And that's where the idea of kinship comes in. Let's be clear. This question could uh, lead to an ego-centered um, approach, like... Um, What do I want to be remembered in um, a bit eco-centered way? That's, of course, not what you mean. Yeah. I think every, every question can always be framed. You know, it, there's always a, a, a shadow side to everything that we do. When we develop technologies, when we ask questions, it really depends on the perspective of the person who is approaching that question. But hopefully with people, you know, a lot of the work that was the sessions that were held here, there is a consciousness that people have. And so if you have a consciousness within you, then the framing is that you recognize where your ego comes into things. And that's why I'm asking the question, because we have to recognize that our ego comes in and we choose a particular position. Some people have said that the question is an egocentric one because it's about what do I want to leave? But that's still centering it around you. This planet The only way that we're going to survive if we move from I human to we human to we kin. And we do a lot of work on the I, on my consciousness. I feel better. This is exactly what I needed. But then what is going to happen to the rest? 
you know, we talk about wanting to save the planet, becoming vegan, becoming vegetarian to save the planet. But if we don't treat our fellow humans as humans, if we don't treat other creatures as, you know, the way that they should be, we're never going to survive. You're a storyteller. We're used to heroes coming to save the world. But it seems, according to you, that we shouldn't wait for him too long. <laughs> <laughs> the hero's journey is the framework of storytelling that was created by Joseph Campbell. And he studied the mythology of many cultures and came put it together in a framework to create this idea of the hero's journey. Most of our storytelling framework have followed that. Yeah. You know, if we think of movies, it's one hero, one journey, one guru who's going to help give them some advice and everything's going to be okay and they're going to change the world and save the world. You know, think Luke Skywalker. But if we just stop for a moment and think about this pandemic, there was no one hero. We all had to play a role. We would not have survived if it wasn't for the people, the nameless people, and they are part of the story. And so my approach is that by recognizing that we need to get away from these hierarchies, yes, you know, we all need to take an individual journey, but we shouldn't stop there, that yeah. we then come together to work together to save each other. When you want to make people like be critical thinkers, how to develop that uh, state of mind that we that requires um, effort yeah. when we could comfortably uh, follow someone's leadership. There's a quote that I use whenever I am preparing to write a, a talk or a session or work with my clients, and I always use it because it keeps me grounded. It's a quote by a, a guy called Brandon Sarterson, and it says, the purpose of a storyteller is not to tell you how to think, but to give you questions to think upon. And that's exactly what I try to do, get people to ask themselves more questions. A great result for me from any talk that I do is that people leave with more questions because then they have to go and explore and they can't unthink that. Yeah. It sticks with them. What should you do with your questions when you have like a brilliant question, not to forget about it? I mean, I'm very good at throwing myself down a rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, but ask people, just ask people who don't look like you, whose lived experience is different, to try and get a different perspective. When I came up with some of my questions, I went and spoke to religious leaders, I spoke to quantum physicists, I spoke to technologists, I spoke to people in really different worlds that are more versed in those worlds than I am and said, look, I'm seeing this pattern. Is this something that you see in your world? And having those conversations from a very open perspective, it can either help solidify my idea or it can help change my perspective. And either way, it's a great thing. It's a good thing, yeah. right? Uh, making the invisible visible. That's your job description. Yes, that's my <laughs> life description. That's your life description. That's amazing. Uh, what are the trends you're trying to make visible, the few trends you're trying to make uh, visible right now? That I believe that our perception of technology is, re is reductionist. Most people think technology is just a digital thing. But really, when we start to look at how we use these things, technology to me does three things. Help us understand and navigate our relationship with ourselves. Help us understand and navigate our relationship with other and with our environment. And so if we look at it from that perspective, artificial intelligence can be technology. I was brought up Catholic and I was taught to believe in the God that I cannot see. But the God that I cannot see that I was worshiping helped me understand my relationship with myself, with others and with my environment. And shamanism 
whether it's plant medicine or sound meditation or any of those things, same thing. Help you understand your relationship with self, other and environment. And so for me, technology are these things. And if I help people to change their perspective and recognize that we don't, we shouldn't necessarily always take a linear approach to looking at things, but a holistic, multi-dimensional approach. It gives us a different way of starting to ask more questions, to try and look at how we can solve problems and who we can bring to the table. Ada Paris has spent the last years researching about what she calls cyborg shamanism, juxtaposing cyborg meaning the quest for some form of enlightenment, whether that be algorithmic, spiritual, metaphysical or quantum, with the idea that the machines will inevitably take over at some time, and shamanism, used as a call to actively seek for other perspectives. For Ada, both question what it means to be human and what do we value and what are we capable of. What's a human aspect in technology for you? There are, there's many facets of that. So I think that when we are designing technologies, we need to keep the human in there because we need to remember that technology is about creating a relationships. It's a, it's a, I tend to refer to it as it's, a, it's an ecology. It's about creating a relational ecology. It's about how for humans, we're always looking for connection. We want to we want to belong. We want to understand how we can be in touch with the other, whether that's physical or virtual. And I think that technology has the potential to do that. The technology itself is not bad. It's the in it's the hands in which it's used, the people who design it, the intention with which it's put out into the world. So on one hand, we will say we can say that social media is bad because it has there are levels of addiction that, you know, there are levels of a We question the depth of the interaction. However, it's how I keep in touch with my cousins who live abroad. You know, there are, so there are benefits. I think, as I said, you know, there is always a shadow side to everything that we do. But I think that in terms of human interaction, it, it has the potential to create a connection. The depth of the connection, I'm still trying to work that one out because yeah. I feel that my deepest connections are formed in person and that's just for me there yeah. is a reality like for, me for me that too. is yeah. being in the same physical space as somebody having this conversation here I can look into your eyes yeah. we can have this interaction we can have the gesticulations the mannerisms which I don't know if that essence of being really comes across through technology And we're capting like sensory, like as you yes. said, we're capting sense. We have sensory receptors like yeah. from each other. Like. I mean, because communication, the way that we communicate is not just linear. It's not just through a device. There are the nuances of the sights in the room, the smells, the atmosphere, the environment that comes into that. And I know that people try to recreate that through experiences like virtual reality. And... It has its benefits, but I worry about an over-reliance on those forms of technology to try and create human interaction. Why is diversity and inclusion a critical factor in the world as we know it? There's so many ways to answer that. I think we as humans, our physical bodies would not exist without diversity. On a molecular structure level, we would not exist 
you know, our cells, the air, everything, even the things that we don't see help to make us who we are. And we know that and we understand that. And yet we then have a problem with many of the many of the places in the world have a problem with diversity and inclusion. Because I feel that what happens is the ego comes in, that I am better than. It's the perception of value and the perception of impact, the perception of the, I am better than you because of this characteristic of my identity, because of, I have more money, because I've been better educated than you. Creating these hierarchies is what is the bigger problem. The diversity is fact. Inclusion and belonging are choices. You have this name, the Oracle. You told us a bit, a bit about your childhood and your yeah. quest of uh, um, questions. But um, what put you uh, in your life on this path for trying uh, to make the invisible visible and to be on the stage? Being on the stage is... Um, I suffer really badly from stage fright. Really? really yeah. <laughs> We couldn't tell. Really badly. The build-up to getting on stage, really, my body feels like I have food poisoning. Okay. I'm, you know, my stomach, I'm shaking and sweating and breathing, so I have to remember to do um, breath work. But I love asking questions. I love, you know, as I said, growing up, my, my mother encouraged us to ask questions to explore to be curious we grew up as children we had the encyclopedias at home and we you know when we had a question from school my mother and father would say go to the encyclopedia go and look it up go and research it go and ask why we went to the library every saturday we went to art galleries we went to explore the forests and that natural curiosity it's it's a mixture of both n nature and nurture because the way that the environment in which I was brought up has just stayed with me. And being able to get onto a stage and ask, not to be afraid to ask the big questions is what drives me. For a long time, I was, I was that person in the conferences that I had a burning question and yeah, I wouldn't put my hand up. And even now, sometimes I find it difficult to do that. Yeah. But there is something about when I step onto the stage, I'm in a state of flow because I'm not saying this is the way. I'm asking you to find, be curious about why you believe what you believe and where that comes from and what are the biases and the perceptions, how have they shaped who you are and the way that you show up in the world and the way that you create and the way that you design because it goes back to being that um, social justice child. I want, I desire a world that is inclusive and that there is equity but also autonomy and sovereignty. Yeah. It would be difficult to guess that Ada Paris could have been shy, especially when you saw her on the last day of harvest giving her speech with overflowing and communicative energy. I came with a question, I came with an idea, and 
you know, life is a state of flux, right? And so my talk, my session has changed. It's evolved as a result of the conversations that I've had with you, as a result of the experiences I've had with you. Oh, and I've got goosebumps. Um, and I have decided that what I'm going to do is I'm going to start by riffing off of what Ari just said about women, about mental health, about we all have anxieties and vulnerabilities. And so I'm going to step into some of mine before I start this session. So I'm a 50-year-old woman, very proud. I have uh, severe ADHD, borderline autism, and I am in that sweet spot between perimenopause and menopause, which means that sometimes whole sentences just get sucked out of my head. There's a great video on YouTube, look up menopause funny, because she talks about the fact that you just lose nouns and suddenly you have 12 verbs, adjectives rather, to describe a thing. So I thought, given what Ari was talking about in terms of who we are, our identities and bridging the gap and not being ashamed of who we are, removing the shame and bridging the gap between who we are, I thought I would start with that. But given the title of this session is Kinship in the Age of Ones and Zeros and Nodes of Possibility, which we will get to, I've also taken my shoes off. If we were outside, I would have done it on the grass. But I've taken my shoes off because I want to be in true kinship with everything. I was amazed by the way you showed your vulnerabilities yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you were barefoot on stage and saying everything that's, that matters to you and what you're going through. Are you, is it a way to connect with people or to ask them to show, to admit their own uh, vulnerabilities too? It's a bit of both. It's a bit of both. I, so the previous speaker, Ari, was talking about, you know, uh, neuroscience and there were a couple of speakers who spoke about mental, the, the, the men, mental health piece that we stigmatize and we don't talk about the fact that everyone experiences a fluctuation in their mental health at various times, whether that's anxiety or imposter syndrome or all of those things. And when I arrived here at Harvest, I was surprised and pleased to realize that the way that people connect, the initial connection was through vulnerability. My first conversations with people were people stepping straight into their vulnerability, which removed that external layer of bravado of this is who, my job title, this is who I am, that external perception. You get beneath the surface and it forms, a, it, it, I believe that it forms deeper connections. And I think because there had been conversations about being a woman and mental health and well-being and all of those things, I just decided to step into it. I didn't know that's what I was going to do. Oh, you improvised. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know. But I just, in that moment, I just felt that that was the thing to say. And I think it was a good thing to say because everybody listened to you and connected a lot with you. So it was um, a great way to emphasize your message your, uh, about the ancestors. Was stroke. That stroke, everybody. Thank you. What kind of story would you tell to a racist person? At the moment, I am working on a new project, a new sound project. Um, and the question that I'm asking is, what does racism sound like without words? 
And I've been asking a few people, uh, people of the global majority from various backgrounds, and one of the things, the common threads, is that it sounds like a, a uncomfortable silence or tinnitus, yeah. just that constant ringing that you are aware of that is always there that may not be present for everybody else. But I also recognise that as a black woman, the first time that I was made aware that I was black, because you, as a children you just are. <laughs> yeah, of course. Yeah. You don't know that you are a different colour, a different identity, until somebody else makes you aware of that. And as a black woman, as a black child, it was traumatic. It's all those things are always, but and that sticks with you. And so you then walk through life, navigating life in a way that you are hyper aware that you're different and you step into certain spaces and you're very aware that you're different and you have that childhood trauma that comes with you and you try not to judge everybody in the same way but microaggressions and microinvalidations and the nuances of racism is not always somebody comes out and is so overt about their racism, but it may be a look or a way that they treat you or they negate the fact that you could have a degree in maths. You know, is that's the heartbreak that is there that you constantly have to have on your shoulders when you step into a space, especially if you are in a minority. But I also recognise that racism is a construct as well and that people have been socialised to believe in a superiority over other. And so as much as it hurts me, I also recognise that, that, that that's a fellow human and I have compassion as much as it hurts. And I think that's why I ask the questions that I do because that racism can also have been something that has been instilled in somebody that they have grown with. Conditioned, yeah. yeah. And if we don't talk about these things in a very open and raw way, nothing's going to change. And so it's a difficult one because I try not to... I've spent a lifetime of having conversations about diversity and racism. And so I try not to get into being on the stage talking about it anymore because it just means I'm recreating my own trauma. But something's got to give. Something's got to change because these social, these social constructs of race, you know, are what creates wars, race, religion, gender issues, these big divides that are really social constructs is what create wars. What's your uh, own routine to be happy and self-aware in the morning? Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> so I wake up, I don't need a lot of sleep. So, oh, okay. So I wake up really early. A, a practice that I try to do every day is as soon as I wake up, I listen to my soundscape and I listen to what's the nearest sound that I hear. It's usually my stomach rumbling. <laughs> And then what's the next sound? So whilst here, the air condition, and then what's the next sound and the next? So I, I broaden my awareness of my environment 
by listening to the sounds and trying to just identify what they are and be, okay, so that's a person walking on the corridor outside and that is the clinking of plates and that's the neighbour waking up and that's a boat, that's whatever. But it helps to ground me. It helps to make me grateful for the fact that I can hear and that I am alive and present in the world. Um, so there's that. We're going to end with uh, a question I'm asking to all the guests okay. uh, for the Harvest podcast. If something easy or simple could be done and would make the world a better place, what would it be for you, Ada? I'm stuck on the easy or simple bit. I don't know if we ever really value things that are really easy. You know, if something's free, you know, we'll take it and we'll use it and what have you. And then people, you, you notice that people discard things really quickly if they're free. And I'm not saying that it has to be a struggle, but we have to put some effort in to what it is to make the change. We have to recognize that we may need to give something up okay that we're used to to make a change need to give something up to make a difference yeah i think that we have to give something up we are all very well, many of us are privileged in various ways and so for the, for the bigger societal things to change we are going to have to give something up that and we are going to have to address that we may feel, oh, but I really need that. Do we? What was life like before we had that thing? <laughs> before we had mobile phones? Before we had digital technology in the way that we use it now? We would still be able to meet people and we would arrange to go places and we would travel around, you know, the world without, you know, our map, our mobile phone apps. Mm -hmm. So it is possible. It's just that we've become, in some places, we've become complacent. Yeah. We've become lazy. Uh, and we think that it makes us more productive. But what do we do with that extra time? Spend it on more apps, right? So it's not going to be easy for Ada. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. For early in the me. morning. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. Bye, Ada. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode and Ada Paris' advice on how to ask the big questions. If you did, please leave us a good review and follow us on Instagram Harvest Series. All of our podcasts are also filmed, so you can also visit youtube.com slash harvest series. Next episode will be with Henri Peralta and we'll talk about neuroscience. Until next time. Mm -hmm.